0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Seagate Rackets Podcast with your host, John Phillips, Rackets Director here at the Seagate Country Club with part one of five of our series entitled Five Weeks, Five Directors. This is an opportunity, while things are pretty low-key here in the summertime, to uh, do some outreach, to contact some directors in the area and uh, have a conversation with them when it comes down to the game of tennis and use this as a platform uh, to be able to have them share their thoughts on the game of tennis. So uh, without further ado, our first interview is with rackets director Jeff Cohen. Jeff Cohen is the rackets director at Woodfield Country Club, which was a club that was the top-ranked rackets facility in the United States of 2022. So without further ado, Jeff Cohen. Going back to your early years, Jeff, what's, um, why, why tennis? Why did you pick tennis to be the industry that you were going to be a professional at?
1: Well, I wasn't really sure. Um, my my family had a very successful flooring business, and um, I was poised to kind of uh, be a part of that. I worked in it for a couple of years, but I always found myself dipping out uh, to go play tennis or you know something tennis related. And uh, I just realized it wasn't in my blood. Uh, probably broke my father's heart, but. Uh, wasn't for me, and, um, I really loved everything about tennis, you know, being outdoors, being around people, being active, and, um, I just fell in love with it, I just remember someone telling me a long time ago, you can do something that you love, you really never work a day in your life, and, um, there's a little bit of truth in that, but, um, I just really enjoy what I do, so that's how I really got involved with tennis, and, and then, of course, uh, You know, I I, I really started in the late 80s, early 90s and um, bounced around South Florida. I've been lucky enough to be at some really nice clubs over the last 20 years or so.
0: That's great. And do you remember, what was your first job in in
1: tennis? So so the very very first thing I did was very entrepreneurial, where I walked into an office, uh, Trammell Crow, which is a big uh, company, and I just said, Hi, I'm Jeff, and I want to run all your tennis facilities. And I was at the right place at the right time, and uh, I met the right person, and I basically was in charge of all their property. So they had all these apartment complexes all over Central Florida, and I had friends that were living there and, and, and running the facilities, and they were like high-end apartment complexes. And That was kind of like my first tennis was a kid, I played the Orange Bowl there, and um, I walked in, and, and uh, I remember it was late at night, I just introduced myself to uh, Howie Worland, who was there for years, I just said, Hi, I'm Jeff Cohen, I just moved to the area, and I was thinking about maybe teaching a little bit, and then I taught there for a number of years, and it was so much fun, because I was there in the
0: 90s, uh, the, the height of South Beach, you know, it was, I was so much fun. I was going to ask you, what made it, like, what made it fun because i've I've heard several i've heard other stories too where like obviously you don't have the technology you have today you don't have some of the amenities that you have today and you don't have like some of the things that were really comfortable and spoiled and we get to kind of enjoy and appreciate every day but there had to be something else some spirit in the air What, what what was it you think that that made the 90s in miami a pretty special place
1: well it was electric i mean i don't know if it'll ever be like that ever again but um it wasn't uncommon you would you know every night it it was a really small town and so you would go out at night and um you know you might be having dinner and drinks and there were so many celebrities so many athletes and just well-known people in the entertainment business that were always out it was like a really small niche group and I had friends that owned restaurants down there, and I lived on the beach. Um, it was just kind of a special time. The modeling industry was really big at the time in South Beach uh, throughout the 90s, I think. Eventually, it moved out to Scottsdale uh, in the early 2000s. But, but um, it, it was just – it was the people, very European in the winter, uh, a lot of Europeans. Um, it was kind of cool because I lived on 4th and Ocean and uh, every section of the beach was different you know like if you went between 8th and 10th street it was all the europeans if you went uh, south of fifth it was all the young high school kids uh you know if you if you went up around Thirteenth 14th street it was different um but it, it was the people the demographic um, it was a party town uh late dinners You go out at night you wake up do it again and, uh, in my job, I had so much freedom, and um, and it, it was just great. I, I worked as much as I wanted to work, and um, worked hard, but had I had so much fun, it was it was a blast. I did that for like five or six years. I think maybe five years on the beach, and um, it was uh, it was it was great time.
0: Too special. Time. Well, you also didn't need you also probably didn't need the social media. You didn't need the groups online, you just kinda of naturally, organically probably just, hey, small small knit group of people, they go out, they know each other. You don't even call you on the phone. You just know that they're gonna be there on a Friday, Saturday night, you know? It's a it's a different yeah, story. Yeah,
1: you you do, so like from from like, you know, maybe November until April and then, you know, uh you really would go out like Monday to Thursday night. And then Friday and Saturday night was kind of like amateur hour, but, um, you know, people would still go out, but that's when you get all the locals that would come in and, um, it was very artsy, very strong, um, art footprint there. And, um, it was just really cool. I met a lot of interesting people and, um, um, it's changed,
0: you know, but, um, it's not the same, but it's, uh, it's still a great, a great place to go. If you're looking back at it, um, there are certain times that I'll get nostalgic. In terms of the tennis industry, you look back at when you were able to teach in the 90s. Yeah. You ever have that moment where you're on the court, it's 2022, you're like, ooh, you know, like, I I I could use a one week of, like, 90s tennis. And if someone turns around and says, Jeff, like, what do you mean 90s tennis? Like, a day in the life of, like, the day in the life of a 1990s uh, tennis pro. How would, what would you say to that person? Well, things were a lot
1: simpler back then. You How know, so? Uh, you know, just just playing tennis, and uh, you well, you got to remember, I was also uh, Flamingo Park was a public facility, so um, you know, I, I'm at a an equity club, you know, at a, at a, a Platinum Club of America. Boca Raton and there's so many nice clubs in the area um so you you know we've we've got so many people that play league tennis men and women junior program pickleball golf fitness aquatics you know spa salon so it's like it's a whole different animal and the expectations are so much more um and you know you're You know, it's completely different, you know, public facility, you're not really a member, you know, and at a a private country club, you know, the people that live here pay for it, so they have, their expectations are much higher.
0: Yep, yep. And players-wise, what's the style? Uh, You've been around the game for a long time. Um, At the club level, at the amateur level, meaning three, three, you look at your players that are like three O's to five O's, Jeff. Right. And you've seen you've seen a lot of players now starting in the '90s and the 2000s, and then the teens, and now today. When you look at where the game is today at the club level, what's the biggest difference that you that kind of sticks out um, in comparison to those early days?
1: Um for the recreational player or, or the professional or
0: club like club player like even if you if you look across the board so so one thing that i've heard is okay the game's changed a little bit so how so for like the club player right and right. and it could be mentality it could be strategy uh, it could be kind of a, the the culture building if if you look and you say okay you got those club players what what's been you think the biggest change from the 90s club player the 3.0 to 5.0 players and then of course today's player or is there do you do you not really see a big difference I, i
1: i would say that you know people overthink a lot more and um now with social media and everything there's so much more at your fingertips as far as instruction online and things like that um I work with all walks of life, you know, from beginners to super advanced players. And at our club at Whitfield, we're very fortunate. We have a lot of really good players. Um, but uh, I just find that, you know, one of my favorite tips here is, you know, think less, feel more. Everybody's just thinking about it. And I said, listen, when you watch the pros on TV, I said, they're not thinking about turning their shoulders, dropping their racket down, following through. They're just hitting the damn ball. And um, and I, I I try to you know you know you've heard the acronym KISS keep it simple silly you know and, and um, just I, I think that uh, you know maybe in the modern game today for the average club player I think that they complicate things I right. I'm really big on you know getting to the ball hitting the ball that's it you know yeah. um, it's not that hard to really teach somebody how to shape the ball you know and. Once you can start spinning the ball, top spin and underspin. That's how you can kind of control your shots, and then it's just a matter of being able to get in position and you know have good shot selection and and um, and just uh, compete well. And, and that's the big thing, you know. I I do notice that, like at country clubs, um, not across the board, but you know, the, the, probably the one thing that I see is that um people don't compete well and um or, or I should say it a different way. People have an opportunity to compete a lot better. And uh, if they would compete better they would realize that they can actually beat people that are as good or better than them just by out hustling them and out competing them. And um uh, and they don't they don't really see that sometimes but um you know, we've we've been so lucky with our our teams here at Whitfield where we've, we've won this past year, John, we we have like six teams that won awards at the end of the season. Three teams finished in first place, two teams finished in second. And um, and our men's teams, you know, we won like three or four teams, but the real secret to the sauce there is a getting the teams in the right divisions and getting the players on the right teams so um, we do all the heavy lifting before the season starts and of course not everybody's happy because you you gotta make some tough decisions and put people on teams where they maybe they're not super thrilled with but uh, at the end of the day it's it's for the best of the program you know And, 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 and that's hard because you want everybody to be happy but at the same time you're trying to build winning teams so um, you know, you gotta draw the line in the sand somewhere,
0: right. And I think the preparation, the preparation that goes into making that happen is a bit underrated. And it's not a bad uh, segue actually into uh, asking you the question. I'm always fascinated by it because I'm younger and you know, I'm not as experienced in terms of the amount of years that I've put into it, and certainly the um, size and scope of the club that that we're all at here. Um, What would you say is something that you do behind the scenes? And it's something that is incredibly important, but many times overlooked. And I'm not saying it's overlooked by members necessarily. I'm actually saying it's overlooked by the average guy who's like, hey, Jeff, you know, I'm going to be a director. I can be a good. I'm I'm good. I got this down. I'm going to have I'm going to have teams that win. I see what you do. I can hit like you. I can coach like you. And then you're like, son, I'm going to just say one little thing that you probably are not thinking about right now when it comes down to what a director needs to be to successful, and it's something you've totally overlooked. How, how would you fill in the blank there? Well, um, how long do we have?
1: There's a, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things. Um, I, I think, um, oh, you know, like when, when we do events, for instance, um there is so much work, so much work that goes into the event before it happens. So when it comes to fruition on the day of the event, I mean, we've had events of 160 people. I mean, that, that's insane. I mean, all my peers in the area, you know, I'll show them pictures of 100 people, 160, like, my God, but, you know, how, what's going on there? Because like, don't you only have 20 courts? And we're like, yeah, we have 20 courts. We put 80 people out and then we, we do something called paddles and rackets or Super Bowl next year, Caribbean night where we have a steel drum or we margarita next year or a mariachi band whatever we do but uh, we add pickleball to these things and so we, we'll do two sessions of pickleball so we'll pick up about you know 80 pickleball players and we'll pick up 80 tennis players and uh, we have this massive event where we'll have food and, and, and drinks after and have some form of entertainment and everybody loves it, and they're like, Thank you, thank you, thank you. But um, there was like a massive undertaking from the staff to pull this thing off. And we we certainly make it look easy on the day of the event, but you know, up until the event starts, a lot of phone calls, making sure everybody's coming, making sure that everybody understands where to go and what time they're going to start. And um, you know, it takes a village to kind of pull all these things off. And, um, it, it, it takes the entire team to make, uh, you know, this uh, well-oiled machine work. But, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, you, you got to have a good team. And um, I've been so blessed uh, where I'm at now and, and uh, surrounded by amazing people. And, and that certainly helps.
0: Right. And I would say a big part of that, too, is things just don't go according to plan. So I feel like no, you know, as sure. – as you get more and more experience you're like okay this is plan a but if you show up in the morning time and you're like all right this is plan a and someone asks you all right so what's b c d d and you're like oh why would i need that it's like oh okay You, you can go with that plan a do you have any good story to share in terms of a curveball being thrown at your way during an event um and how you were able to kind of uh deal with deal with something that was unpredictable that came up last minute
1: yeah sure like well with our events um it's not uncommon that you get people that sign up that don't show up or you get people that didn't sign up that show up and so usually what happens is as everybody's checking in they're coming in you know let's say it's the super bowl mixer where you have this fun event everybody wears a football jersey and we all play tennis and pick a ball and then eat after and um usually it's sold out but one of, one of my um Things that I've always done is I always have the pro staff available. So, like if somebody doesn't show, I plug the pro in. Now, and that costs money, but you got to factor it in there. Um, you don't want 160 people sitting around waiting for you to go back and change all the, uh, you know, the, the rounds and, and the pairings because you know one person didn't show. So we will plug a pro in or two or whatever it is. But usually I will look at you know Rob who helps me out with a lot of the events or some of the staff, and I'll say, you know, what's Joe Blow doing here? He didn't sign up, and they're like, I don't know, and they go, well, he looks like he's here ready to play, and then I'll walk up to Joe Blow, and I'll say, hey, you know, nice to see you, uh, are you, uh, you know, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I'm here, you know, and I said, well, he didn't sign up, and he's like, oh, no, no, uh, you know, I'm here to play, I'm like, well, 160 people signed up, and we don't see your name on the registration, and you know, you get into that awkwardness, and at the end of the day, like, you know, we, we try to include them if we can um, in every way possible. But, um, you know, those are things that happen, and I'm sure that those happen in all the, the clubs in the area. But, um, you know, just stupid stuff, like I mean, stuff that you can't control, like if it rains. We had a big member guest event, and, you know, we got rained out, and just, you know, opened up, the skies opened up, and. Cost us a lot of money because you know we had all the vendors and everything. But um, you know we've 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 uh, you know the old when I first got to Woodfield, we had this massive event that we were doing at night, and we used to have the lights on timers. Oh, I did
0: that. (laughs) I have an idea. I don't want to ruin your story. But I have an idea of what might come next, because unfortunately I was a victim as well. But go ahead.
1: Yeah, that is, that's happened to everybody at least once. So the lights are on timers. And, <laughs> um, and so I always say, make sure you crank the timers, you know. And, um, and, of course, anybody that has played tennis years ago, or even, even today, um, once the lights are on and they turn off, uh, it usually takes a good 20 to 30 minutes for them to come back on. And uh, it just basically killed the event and um, we're so lucky now we, we have LED lights so it's like turning on and off a, a light switch. Yep. so we
0: never have to worry about that but, um, I'll never yeah. I'll never forget my first story beach club first big event got massive good great turnout bunch of guys high not high level but for club you know 4.0 for 4.0 to 4.5 guys to get three courts going is great. Everything going fantastic. I'm checking off all the boxes. Two things I didn't notice. A, one guy didn't show up and I didn't jump out there to be the fourth. Instead, they had to play kind of Canadian style. But when you're young and you're first doing these kind of like events, your your mind is so preoccupied and you haven't had the experience in many, many ways to think clearly. And that was the first one. So they were like playing Canadian doubles and everyone else is having a good time, but they're doing the Canadian doubles. You can tell they're not like 100% thrilled about it. Meanwhile, all I had to do was step out there and play, but that's not going through my mind. And the second thing was the lights go and the worst part was the lights go out. You have to wait 10 to 20 minutes. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. And it happened at the worst time, right, like that 25-minute mark where guys are warmed up. They've kind of played the first round. You're starting that second round, and then the lights go out. The beers start to crack open, and you're like, oh, man, these guys don't want to go back on the court. Anyway, it happens. I mean, you know, you, you kind of need those you don't want those things to happen, but it's almost, you need that to actually happen in order for you to be like, okay, I'm going to make a better event. I mean, it's one thing for someone to kind of warn you ahead of time, but it's almost like you kind of have to go through that experience to really get it. You know?
1: Yeah. We've had it both ways where it's human error. And then the other one, um, about a year ago, we, you know, we renovated our whole entire tennis facility. Um, uh, everything is completely brand new and uh when we were rewiring all the lights and everything um i had an event about a year ago um so about 10 years apart and um the the lights just went out we couldn't Mm. get them back on and um it was terrible and it was an an event with food and beverage and it was a new event that we tried called boomers and ballers and and uh and the attendance was great but, uh, you know, we had
0: food and beverage, so everybody kind of just, we, we ate a lot sooner and drank a lot sooner. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and make the most of it. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, st- sticking on kind of members in, in the club scene and what you see on the court, um, what would you say, looking at, like, you mentioned your teams are pretty successful and your events are, are successful, What's something that when you're at a practice, what's one thing that you think is incredibly underrated, not taught enough in general at the club level all across this country and USPTA clubs, affiliated clubs? And then give me something that's overdone, where it's very popular. You might see that a convention, state, national, You might see it on YouTube, you'll get the whole breakdown, you'll get the endorsement from someone who has all this name recognition, but in your eyes, being around the game, it's overrated. So give me your underrated thing that's taught at clubs, and maybe an overrated thing that someone listening to this podcast, especially if you're a pro, young kid, looking to make um, an impression on uh, players, something for them to think about.
1: Well, underrated, I would say that, um, and we're guilty of it here as well, is, is uh, we don't spend enough time on serves and returns. And everybody likes to get out there, and, and everybody likes to whack the ball around. You know, we've all seen that. They go out, they hit for 50 minutes, they come up to the net, they spend about 15 seconds hitting a couple volleys, they might point up, they might hit one overhead, and they walk back and they say, all right, you know, let's go. Um, and then they get into a match, of course, and and uh, the serve doesn't go in, and the return doesn't go in, and then nothing happens, and then it's like, you know, well, I always play so much better with you, and it's like, yeah, because we're really good at hitting the ball right to you, and um, and that's the difference. But um, that I, that that's probably something that's underrated in my opinion, as far as like. Uh, you know, most players not working enough on serves and returns when it comes to their tennis game. Um, and overrated, um, I would say. Uh, I think people overthink too much. Um, I I think. Uh, um, I mean, you you you've been doing this for a while. I've been doing it for quite some time. I mean you tell the same people the same thing every week and so it's like you know you get frustrated it's like okay either you don't you're not listening to me you don't understand me or you just don't want to do it you know like we're not talking because we want to hear ourselves we're talking because we're trying to help you and maximize your potential it's okay if you can't do it but you know, if you don't want to do it, then don't expect yourself to become better. But I would say, um, I think people really overthink stuff. And, um, and I'm a little bit old school, you know, run to the ball, see the ball, hit the ball, and just try to keep it super simple. And, um, uh, and you know, one of my favorite tips is think less, feel more. Yep. Um and, and of course you can't hit what you can't get to and um you know, people are like, you know, can you help me with my forehand? And I'm like, Well it's not your forehand. I haven't seen you hit one forehand in the strike zone. Um your, your forehand's not the problem, it's your feet. You know, and and, and and in all fairness, you know, some people just, you know, don't move like they used to, which is the case for almost everybody. Yep. But like you have you have to be aware of that. So like Um, You know, you can't expect to, uh, you know, hit every forehand, backhand, perfect if you're hitting everything outside your strike zone. Um, But uh, you know, I I like to also use the one out of position. Don't be a magician, and um, which is basically like just get the ball back and play if you're not set up. Right, and um, you know, but um, I I I love how passionate some people are, and it's and for me. It's really not even about how good you are. It's I love working with people that want to get better that are into it. I I will not work with anybody that doesn't want to be there. I won't do it. I just won't go on the court. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't babysit. I don't do that stuff.
0: Yep. Yep. And you, um, when when we look at an overrated underrated element to to the club player and, and what they can focus on when it comes down to the pro, the, the assistant director, someone who's your right hand man or woman by your side. Um, what would you say is something that's an underrated quality to have as a pro looking to continue to kind of, you know, build that resume and climb that ladder What's something, in your eyes, doing this a heck of a long time, you've worked with a lot of different people, a lot of different age groups, a lot of different levels when it comes down to pros, communicating in all different types of ways. When you're looking at this situation and you have that young pro and they come to you and say, Jeff, I'm looking to climb that ladder. I'm looking to get to that next level. In that conversation, what's something that maybe you would say – Um, that's underrated that something for that they should do that that, that's underrated and then something that hey don't worry too much about this because I know it's popular and I know you think you would need this but you know put the brakes on that part Uh, how would you go over that that those parts well I mean um, it's
1: funny that you you mentioned that because I get asked all the time you know hey like let's say someone said, Hey Jeff, what do you think about John Phillips? I would say, John's a great guy and I think he does an awesome job, but I've never worked with John because what happens is is that you know people in the industry and there have been occasions where you work with someone who you thought was all that and, 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 and more and you know, they, they it becomes a disappointment. So you really don't know like how somebody's work ethic is or how they are around, around the members um, whether they're super positive or, or kind of vanilla. So you you have to work with somebody um, to really kind of get a feel for that, you know, for, for that individual's personality. But I would say that like time management is super important. And also, you know, trying to be on as often as you can be, um, you know, when you when you walk into a club and you've got a lot of stuff going on in your personal life you got to leave it at home if you can walk in the door good morning how are you nice to see you and um you don't have to be fake but you know at the same time you, you just you have to kind of like you know put on that smile and and go about your day and try to be as as positive as you can but um you know i i think that um if you if you're a head pro and, and, and you're looking to become a director, you know, uh, general managers or or search firms or or, um, or or tennis committees, they're they're looking for someone who they they when, when they meet you, they, they're trying to imagine if like how do they see themselves with you or do they do they do they like you? Do they see themselves, you know, interacting well with you? Is this person a leader? Is he well connected? Does he have experience? Um, You know, does he run events? Um, How does he do with dealing with members? Um, How do you say no with a velvet hammer? Don't make promises that you can't keep. Um, You know, can he do a budget? Um, How is he with hiring, firing? Can he do a pro forma? Performance reviews. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You know, so I was up at I was up at a wedding. I'm going to digress for a minute. And someone asked me. He said, um, "You know, hey, uh, you know, what do you do?" And, and I said, um, "I'm a million dollar babysitter." And they go, "What?" I said, "I'm a million dollar babysitter." And they go, I, "I don't get it." And I said, "Well, I said I'm a tennis pro." I said, "I love it," but I said, um, "You know." Ninety-nine percent of the people are fantastic, but you know the, the trick is, is not to spend you know ninety-nine percent of your time on the one percent. Um, and sometimes that's a mistake that we all make, where you know we, we, we devote a lot of time to the squeaky wheel. Um, but uh, I'm kind of rambling on, but but um, you yeah. know, you, I think that if you're in a management position and you oversee uh, a group of pros um, or staff, and you're running events, and you're, in, you're, you're involved with juniors and ladies' teams and men's teams and things like that, and you have the right personality, um, you've got an excellent chance of becoming a director and moving up the ladder. Uh, playing, you know, having a, a really strong playing background, is just, it's a plus. It's all it is. Um, yeah nobody's hiring you. If you're, you know, top 50 in the world, you never run a club. There's zero chance that's going to happen. You have to have some experience.
0: Right. And has it, you know, going back to your point, um, earlier in terms of like preparation and management. And like you said about the 99%, the one, do you feel like that part of the industry has pretty much stayed the same that the things that you went through, let's say in 2022, um, Are the same things that you went through in 2010 or has the industry gone through a bit of a change where the blueprint for building that, that career, um, has it, you know, it's, it's, it's different. Is it drastically different, kind of different, or mostly just relatively overlapping each other?
1: I think I think it also depends on where you're at. So, like, I've been so very fortunate and lucky that, um, you know, I've been at, like, five really nice clubs over the last 25 years. So every club had something different to offer. Every right. club had a different demographic. And I was able to learn and take away from each of these clubs. Now, there's a uh, a lot of pros now at these clubs for 25, 35 years, and they've been at the same club. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but – when you ask that question, um, it's completely different. I'm at my demographic where I'm at is super young. I mean, we're like one of the youngest clubs in the country, so everybody's busy. Um, you know, everybody comes out, um, they they get in, they get out, and they move on. Now, if you're at another club, let's say that they're affluent or not, let's say that they're a little bit older, maybe a little bit more retirees. Um, not always, but those. Type of members can be a little bit more difficult. They have more time on their hands. And they can nitpick a little bit more. Right. Um, you know, working people they're just happy to get out here, play tennis, and go home. Right. You know, people that have a lot of time on their hands. You know, hey, you know, the, the net was a half an inch low, and you know, the windscreen was missing a windscreen guy, You know, or, or just like, okay, all right, thank you for letting me know. Yeah. Um, but um, I really, I really think that it depends on the club that you're at and the membership type.
0: Yeah. um, That's more of a difference. Yep. I get that. So it's not so much that the industry has changed. It's just that, you know, it's, it's, it's more of like, you can go through a bigger change in your life from 2022 to 2023 in just one year. If the type of club that you are at changes and that change, that change of going from that young club to that older club will be much different than let's say, uh, starting at that sing at that club at Woodfield in 2010, and then starting again at another type of Woodfield in, ten years later. Um, that's right.
1: So I, I've been at a resort, a resort slash country club. Yep. I've been at a, a, a private country club and equity club. I've been at a privately owned country club. Um, I've been at a couple of those. Um, it, it, it just depends on the membership and every club that I've been at is completely different, completely different. Public facilities are completely different than, you know, private ones. Um, you know, working for a developer, like a privately held country club is completely different than, you know, working at a, uh, an equity club where you have a board of governors and, a, and committees and a general manager and management and things like that. So, um, It's uh, they're all different. Um, It's it's uh, I've been lucky to kind of experience almost everything. I think the only thing I haven't done is uh, really uh, been a college coach. Right. Um, But um, yeah, it's it's uh, they're all different. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, to wrap wrap it up, Jeff. I was gonna I'm gonna end with the same question. Pretty much, I'll end. Uh with each one of you directors is um you know you you look at a situation that you're in now you look at your entire career you look at the pro level the club level if there's something that you can change or you feel like the game needs to change what's the biggest change that you would make you're the you're the president of u s t a or USPTA, and you can make you can make one change to the pro to the club level what's what's one thing you would like to see? Uh, coming from your perspective, to change. <laughs> well, like your gut. There's probably several things, but you know, one thing that well, definitely comes out. I mean, that's a, a loaded question. I wish I would have, you know, had that question.
1: <laughs> okay. But um, what? I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll vent for a minute. Um, I absolutely get so fired up, and it, it drives me crazy. this ladies team tennis they play this third set out it is the stupidest thing you know that 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 i've ever seen the pros don't play a third set you know the exception of the grand slams um and you know they play no you know the no ad scoring and 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 so you're sitting there in september and it's a thousand degrees and these women are out there for four and a half hours um, and the pro is sitting there watching this match and you know you're 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 you know making sure there's batteries in the defibrillator it's like uh and uh, every year we go to the league and say you know make a change like you know make it mandatory that the third set you know is a is it is a buster a tiebreaker yep you know and the last time i, I spoke to them you know like well we did a poll and 90 something percent want to play the third set out They said great if 90% of them want to play it out, then you should 100% make the third set a 10-point tiebreaker. Because that way, if all four players want to play it out, you're saying that 90-some percent want to play it out, then that means that the vast majority of the time they're going to play the third set out or anyways. But the way that the rule is right now is that they uh, – um, all four have to agree to play a tiebreaker.
0: And, I get exactly and course, what you're saying, if yep. I'm John.
1: If I'm yep. playing you and you're playing me, and I said, "Hey, John, you want to play a tiebreaker?" And if I ask you to play a tiebreaker, you're gonna you're gonna go, "Shit, he's tired. Like he yep. doesn't want to play a Thursday." You're yep. just your knee up and Be like, "Nope, let's play it out." <laughs> you
0: know, That's true. He, so, so on the recreational level level.
1: I think all the pros in the area are just just so like ready for the league to step in and do the right thing and to make it mandatory that the third set's a breaker unless all four want to play the third set out. It makes so much more sense um, and plus, and for health reasons as well. But um, on a bigger scale, um, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I've, I don't like the net court, you know, that they, you know, we're doing in college where, you know, the serve, you know, I'll, I'll let you play it. Um, I don't like the idea of changing the scoring. I don't like the idea of changing the dimensions of the court. Um, and, 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 you know, I mean, how tall are you, John? 6'4. Six 6'4. Four. Six four. So, like, you're like the typical size on the ATP tour now. It's like, yeah everybody is like a basketball player and everybody serves bombs and the game's getting faster and faster and faster and um it's just uh they got to do something to slow it down i don't know if if it's the surface of the ball but um i i would say that the the governing bodies need to
0: look at you know slowing the surface down yep or or or
1: changing the ball to where it slows it down without, you know, creating arm problems. But
0: right. Um, well, and I think that it takes away sometimes. And trust me, I, I'm the first guy to sign up for short points with the serve and volley game. However, <laughs> yeah. however, I would say that it does take away from the game of chess that's sometimes played out there. You know, if you if every yeah. single point is one or two shots, it's like where's where's the chess match? Sometimes on that orange clay, that Roland Garros, that Nadal, Djokovic going at each other, you're like ah. What are these guys doing? Where's the strategy? What's going on? Where are they going with that ball? Why are they going there? How are they doing that? You know, like, there's a bit of a chess game in a tennis match, and I think sometimes if the points are so short and the ball is hitting so fast, some of that chess game is, you know, is taken away.
1: Yeah, and bring back the characters, you know. Back in the day, I mean, it was so... You know, think of the contrast. I mean, Borg McEnroe, you had, you had someone that attacked, someone that stayed back everett and tolova so you had you know counter punchers and someone that would attack someone that would pass um you can't come in anymore because everybody returns so good yep. so with the exception of wimbledon which is going on right now yep. nobody serves in volleys i mean i was out uh with craig wittes for dinner and we were watching you know wimbledon or whatever it was one of the not wimbledon one of the eastbourne or something one of the warm-up tournaments and uh, craig played Wimbledon several times he's like look at the grass he's like it's not even worn out of the service box and, you know because back in the day like yep. you know the, the, the courts were so worn up worn out in the middle of the court and on the baseline but nobody comes in anymore yep. um because because you can't um but you know the the characters of McEnroe and i don't watch a lot of tennis but like if curios plays i enjoy watching him because he's so entertaining and Sis, who's a great athlete and um, but um, it, it sure would be good to, to get some of the characters back in the game like we used to have and I think it would make it more interesting. but um, I don't know. Uh, you know you and I are lucky enough to live in an age where we're witnessing probably you know three of the greatest players to ever play the game and they're, they're all playing right now. You know fed fed joker and the doll and um i mean hundreds of years from now they're going to look back and they're still going to be mentioned yeah
0: i don't think we realize how good we had it you know it was like a period of time where like we i mean we appreciate it and we stand and we applaud and we think it's great but just i don't think we all have been able to kind of get our to wrap our minds around the idea of like exactly what you said, we just literally witnessed three of the top players all happen to play at the same time, all relatively the same age. And for about five to 10 years playing competitively against each other again and again and again in majors. And it's like, that just doesn't happen in sports too often, you know? No, it's, it's like the Lakers Celtics. Yeah. It's Red Sox. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's really
1: yeah. cool to see. And, um, I mean, look, if, if Nadal and, and, and Joker are, are in the finals of Wimbledon, I'll watch that for sure. You know, I'll tune in because history is being made. But, um, you know, um, it's it's a little bit vanilla now for me. Yeah.
0: Um, I was disappointed that I had to watch him in a quarterfinal match. I'm watching Djokovic and Nadal, and I'm like, what are we doing watching them in a quarterfinal match? What's the, uh, what's going yeah. on here, you know? And so, I, but I it, think. I
1: think 20 years ago or something like that, I think Agassi-Sampras may have played each other like second round at the U.S. Open. That's when I think Agassi was unseated. But um, it it happens from time to time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, this was great stuff, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining me um, on this podcast. Again, Jeff Cohen, Rackets Director at Woodfield Country Club. Uh, number one country club businessinsider.com, i believe named it uh for the year i believe if i'm correct 2022 is that correct i don't want to butcher it no that's
1: that's right thanks for having me
0: john great Uh, i got nervous by the way so i did a ca rackets update podcast which everyone can make fun of me the one that i did right before this one that will be that was already posted and i kind of like without even checking with you guys i'm like and we're gonna have five directors joining me over the next you know five weeks and i'm i get off and i'm like I have no one <laughs> i mean not i it's not that i had no one it's just i didn't even send the text out yet but i already obviously said it too early and luckily within three days i was able to get five guys to join me thank goodness and uh again thanks jeff for joining us today
1: no it's cool uh i appreciate it, it was a lot of fun and um i'll uh, hope
0: to see you soon jeff all right thanks jeff